This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Hi, I'm Lauren Sanders. Welcome to the UQ's Law and the Future of War podcast. Today we're talking with Group Captain Joe Brick, who is currently the Chief of Staff at the Australian Defence College for the Australian Defence Force in Canberra, about the future of wargaming and professional military education. We're also going to touch on some of her work in relation to the challenges about teaching and inculcating ethics in decision-making, particularly considering technological challenges with the conduct of remote warfare. Captain Brick is an Air Force legal officer um, who has previously filled roles as the Staff Officer Legal to the Chief of the Defence Force and the Legal Advisor to the Chief of the Air Force. She's been directing staff at the Australian Command and Staff Course at the Australian War College and is currently filling the position of Chief of Staff at the Australian Defence College. She has numerous operational deployments, including in Iraq, Afghanistan and in domestic security operations. Um, most recently in Operation Ocra in 2016 as the advisor to the commander of the Australian Air Task Group. She has a keen interest in international relations, military strategy and the laws of war, an expert on Australian civilian military relations and strategy. She's a non-resident fellow of the Krulak Centre at the United States Marine Corps and an editor for a number of blogs, including the Strategy Bridge and the Central Blue. Thanks for joining us today, Joe. Um, what we're going to be talking about today is part of our series on wargaming, training and education and the use of technology in those processes, um, which is something that Joe has spoken about um, in a, on, on a few other podcasts, which we'll put some links to on the show notes. Hi, great to have you. Thanks very much, Lauren. Um, really good to chat to you um, and uh, to be part of the podcast series. And yeah, as you know, I love talking about wargaming and how it links to education. So yeah, thanks very much for your time. So just to start then, I guess to set the scene, could you explain for our listeners what wargaming and professional military education are or what their purposes are? So um, in a broad sense, um, professional military education is focused on um, enhancing the uh, knowledge and skills of our military personnel. Um, and we even go a little bit broader in, in the Australian Defence Force. We go and include our APS uh, personnel as well as part of that continuum, noting that we are um, an integrated workforce. So it's really enhancing what um, General Ryan, the commander of ADC, calls the intellectual edge, using our minds uh, to make good decisions, to forecast um, what the future of war might look like and therefore um, how we might need to fight it and prepare our forces. So I guess that's it in a nutshell. Um, and I can give you some links to some good um articles that are written on uh, the professional aspects of, um, of uh, military forces and uh, national security professionals. Um, and the other aspect is wargaming. Now, that's an interesting question because depending on who you ask will um, determine the answer um, because wargaming can include so many things, and I guess that's part of, part of the issue. But the way we use it at the Australian Defence College is um, as a means of uh, using uh, games, whether they're um, computer or digital type uh, games or even um, board games, to enhance decision-making. And in fact, the United uh, Kingdom Ministry of Defence actually has what I like. It's not so much a, 
a definition rather than a um, number of, of characteristics of what um, war games include, what they are. So the UK Ministry of Defence has a war gaming handbook and they, instead of defining what war games are, they look at what the characteristics of games are um, and that includes the players, uh, the, decision they, the t- decisions they take, the narratives they create or the stories um, around the gameplay their shared experiences and probably the most important part is what lessons they take away from from that. So war games can be a key uh, way of enhancing um, education and training through experiential learning. Because as you know, we went through staff college together. It's the, you know, you can't just sit in a lecture theatre and and just do lectures and seminars. There needs to be something else that complements that and war games are a way of um, achieving that. So from what you've said, it's it's more than just what you sort of read about in the paper when you hear about, you know, the US fleet conducting a war game. It's not just a case of an exercise of military personnel per se. It's more focused in the educative sense on decision-making skills. Is that is that right? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I guess uh, it's a good point you raise about the, the scale of war games. I mean, we have, you know, the collective training, the big war games that we have, like uh, Talisman Sabre, which has finished recently. Um, and Pitch Black, which is a big Air Force uh, coalition kind of exercise scenario to practice air combat. Um, those are the huge muscle movements in defence. And they do have aspects of them where decision making is part of it, like in a command environment. But um, in the education institution, so at the Australian Defence College, it's really about enhancing judgment and decision making uh, abilities uh, of personnel in an incredibly benign environment, i.e., the cost of losing a war game is probably your pride <laughs> and a bit of kudos in the class. And you can replay that uh, knowing that you have learnt lessons and probably try and do something different the next time, which, as you know, is not possible with real-world decisions that have incredibly lasting. You can't take take back any of those things. So how does the Australian Defence College use technology then to enhance those processes or enhance those learning outcomes? So the tech um, aspects, uh, and, uh, as I think I mentioned previously, games can be done through technology or, or I guess analogue is, is the other way, through um, just normal board games and uh, what's called matrix wargaming. So it's a lot of um, debate and argument. But at the college, we have a uh, very small capability um, in the simulation centre at the Warfare Training Centre uh, up at Williamtown. And uh, that small team creates a lot of uh, simulation support so simulations of things like language training or um, assistance with United Nations pre-deployment courses, for example. Um, the language one I had the privilege of seeing in about March this year when I visited um, the School of Languages down in Laverton. And essentially um, they have an avatar or a simulation of a scenario and they have the students come through and talk to the avatar in, in the language that they're learning, you know, be it Mandarin, Japanese, you know, French, whatever it may be. But the interesting aspect of that that the instructors were talking about is it brings out the nuances of language. So depending on the avatar they have, an old person or a young person, or in this scenario they had an older soldier um, in a Chinese context, it changes the way the students use language because obviously language has things like, uh, you know, it's got um, gender, but it also has deference in, in when you're dealing with senior or age people. So seeing them nuance their language depending on avatar was a good way for them to sort of enhance their skills. So it was pretty cool. Um, and as I mentioned, in UN training, uh, they have a couple of simulations where the students 
perhaps um, attend a roadblock where there's like a protest and they interact with the avatars um, to try and calm the situation or whatever their mission may be. An interesting thing is the avatar is actually a person in a in a uh, in a suit. Um, it's almost like the suit they wear on in um, you know making movies with green screens, you know, with little balls on their heads and stuff. Where um, you can change a person uh, who's like me of Asian appearance and short to someone who's tall and and a uh, different gender, so that you you don't run out of role players. I guess it's limited only by the technology. So that's an exciting development from the uh, simulation centre side of the house. So uh, the only thing that I would say is we have limited resources. So these capabilities are very much um, in use, but I guess we just need the time to invest in developing and rolling that out across the college. The opportunities, I guess, are um, only limited by imagination and money and people. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good opportunities there. I guess one of the benefits of this technology is that potential to actually be less resource intensive than having to go out and find role players and run traditional exercises. Um, I mean, I, I assume there is still a place for practicing as close to real world as possible. The use of simulation in training obviously offers a number of benefits, not only to familiarize people with different environments, the ability to change those environments really easily, but um, as you as you mentioned, it offers an opportunity to have a trial run without the cost of getting it wrong. Um, mm-hmm. With that in mind, what what do you think the key benefits, or what what is the focus in respect of um, legal and ethical compliance from the wargaming that runs at the college? Uh, that's a really interesting question because um, I spoke recently about ethics, uh, not so much about law, but the same applies right to to legal and ethics. Um, they they are quite close and need to be discussed together. And so I guess stepping it back to an initial point I made that um, war games are really to enhance um, decisions and the role of either the legal advisor or the commander is really to the legal advisor's role to, um, you know, assist in decision-making, um, whereas it's the commander's call, right, they have to make that decision themselves. Um, so games offer that opportunity to practise the interaction between commander and staff and also for the commander to actually make the decisions. The ethics aspects are uh, uh, really interesting because most um, traditional, I'll say traditional war games, really focus on military um, capabilities and, you know, combat, be it in the commuter game environment where you see a lot of that popular popular games related to first-person shooters and planning tactical scenarios in a um, sort of, top-down sort of simulation, something like there's a game called Command PE that looks at that kind of stuff. But none of them really look at ethics as the core or, or the law as the core reason for the game. Um, and a lot of the battle spaces, I guess, in some of these, um, particularly the top-down type of simulations or, or games, focus only on, like, say, combat and military versus military. The, the battle space is kind of sanitised. Same as, same as board games, right? Um, you see the people playing miniatures, uh, Flames of War, for example. we got miniatures on a board. There's no civilians to speak of. There's really just um, soldiers in their capabilities. So um, where does the ethics come in? It's an uh, interesting question. And I can talk about a couple of games. Um, there are a couple of computer games that have 
different consequences for decisions made, and they're not specific to military scenarios, but they have an abstract ethical component to them. So we can talk about that a little bit later if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. I think um, what what is interesting, uh, some, uh, my colleague um, Eve Massingham has recently written on the capacity to ensure respect for international law by building in the laws of armed conflict in just civilian computer gaming so that it is something that is actually built into the psyche of the general populace, mm-hmm. that the, the sort of de- desensitisation to violence as it's connected to armed conflict is uh, is broken somewhat by building those rules into into the games so i'd be interested to hear your views on on that as a general concept and then also how how that actually applies in training because there's there's a level of i guess desensitization to decision making that's necessary so people can make tough decisions under pressure but then on the other hand there's that requirement to ensure ethics, humanity, morality, and, you know, legal compliance remain at the forefront of commanders' minds when they're conducting themselves in armed conflict and, and those high-pressure situations. So just interested on, on your take on that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, the desensitisation one is interesting because um, I guess, uh, you know, video games per se in the commercial world, um, they have ratings on them, right, depending on the level of violence and things that are in them. Um, and they've always been... Uh, quite controversial. I played a lot of games when I was growing up and I, I remember a lot of controversy with some of the games that were uh, either gratuitously violent or, you know, allowed behaviour online that would be, I guess, criminal. Um, and so games like Grand Theft Auto is probably the one that I remember the most as having some of those where you play a thug and you go and mug people and do all of this kind of stuff. So, and I, I remember some of the discourse in at the time those kinds of games were released that it's it's a simulation. It lets people look at the world from a different perspective. It doesn't mean that they're going to be like that in the real world. But I, I think it's still a controversial and interesting um, point to make when you look at military training uh, and the issue of desensitization. Now, um, I gave this a little bit of thought because I knew you wanted to talk about it. And um, I guess my this is just my personal view and, and based on my readings, I think historically we the military forces tended to want to desensitise people to to enable them to, you know, apply force in a timely fashion to address um, threats. I think there might be a bit of a shift more towards creating military professionals who not so much desensitise but actually appreciate um, and understand the decisions they make and the gravity of the consequences that they make. And I think it's difficult these days perhaps to desensitise because we see so much of what happens in the battle space because of social media and all kinds of things, right? Um, it's quite transparent. So I covered it in a paper I wrote on remote warfare where uh, I guess in the remote sense, you um, most pilots of uh, remote platforms like the MQ-9 Reaper, there's a book called um, Reaper Force. Um, Dr Peter Lee wrote wrote it and it's really about looking at how these um, men and women who fly these platforms can loiter over a target for some time and actually get to know the target and the families um, of, the, of the target. So it's called he calls it the distance paradox um, in that we are applying for us from so far away, but because the sensors are so close, you see so much more. So I think in that context, desensitization is a lot harder. Um, because you're seeing that the person that you're about to kill 
is a dad or is playing with the kids and doing stuff that you would be doing. So it bridges that gap between them and us, which the desensitisation attempts to do. So that's why I say I think these days we um we try and create military professionals who understand that, that the target is someone, is a person um, who does things possibly like you, but because we as a state consider that their actions of their military force are contrary to our national interests, we've been allowed to apply force. And so it's, I guess, the bottom line, it's incredibly hard to create that desensitisation. And I guess that's where the linking back to wargaming, using games to show people uh, some of the second and thought, third order the consequences of their decisions is, you know, sort of a key part of that. So I'm not, I don't think it's a valuable thing to desensitise military people against these things. I think it's about making them understand what a member of the profession of arms is allowed to do and also um, therefore making them more resilient to some of these decisions and actions that they they have to take. So, um, yeah, it's a bit more of a stoic, I guess, approach of accepting the world as it is and learning to, to, to deal with those through training, education and values-based um, character, building character, all those things, rather than removing the uh, humanity, the humans from, from the equation. Because, I mean, war is between is humans versus humans and that's, all, that's the whole point of it. So Yeah, there's some really great points there I'd, I'd really like to dive into in some more detail. Um, so the first one is that concept of desensitisation through the use of technology when applying the use of force. So um, I'll put a, a link in the show notes to your paper um, about those um, UAV pilots and then mm-hmm. sort of moral and legal and ethical issues that derive from effectively going to work in the morning, plugging into a, a war zone, doing your job and then driving home at the end of the day. That's a really fascinating read. Um, but I think one of the um, debates about technology is the potential um, disbursement of liability through using these kinds of chains of responsibility for decisions. So you've got one person designing the capability, one person deploying it, one person looking through one straw at, at a particular you know, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance feed, the decision maker being someone else. Um, how how can you use technology then in this wargaming concept to overcome some of that disbursement of responsibility or, or um, the potential for technology to dilute responsibility for those use of force decisions? Technology can dilute it. Um, and, and in some ways it's not even just technology, it's processes as well. Um, having served in, in a combined air, air operations centre or a CAOC, um, they are quite um, monstrous beasts, right? They're a massive enterprise um, with many, uh, you know, subunits underneath it. And sometimes the chain of decision-making or the kill chain, if you want to use that um, as, a, as a phrase, um, you know, from the decision-maker to the, to the shooter, can be quite long and there's a lot of process and bureaucracy and a lot of... Um, you know, I guess if you look from a legal perspective, you, you look at the causal chain really and you go, well, who is responsible for this decision? But I, I guess we always default back to the um, the principle that of command responsibility, right, that all decisions made will rest on that commander who made the decision um, as a key aspect of, of um, the laws of war. Uh, and I don't think that's going to be going away anytime soon. But what it does complicate 
it's probably for the commander of how how is my decision going to be executed in the manner that I intended it to be, going through all these layers um, with technology included, um, particularly if you include or um, you know or semi-autonomous systems in part of that, which can also, by the way, create efficiencies in decision making. So it is double-edged, and um, we need to understand what that means for for. I guess, criminal liability when we look at breaches of the laws of war or also for commanders to understand what is that black box doing when I press the button? You know, that's always a perpetual question, as you know, when when considering um, what those machines are actually doing. Um, so, uh, yeah, and how games incorporate into that. I think possibly, and again, I'm just, from my perspective, it's not something that um, uh, I know uh, where we don't really have much of that, but um capability but i think there are parts of defense looking at things like live virtual constructive lvc um platforms to to practice uh command decision making in certain exercises but i don't know if the audit trail of decisions have been sort of like examined as a key part of that but you can certainly create in a in a simulation environment um uh, like a war room where you have different advisors and staff inputting into a system um so to inform the commander to make a decision and i've certainly seen that in um, a lot of exercises with coalition partners where you are inputting into a common battle space picture or a decision making tool um where for example as the jag you would green light your screen if you you know are happy with uh the legal advice that you're given and the target that you've given but I guess um, it is quite, to me, rudimentary. I've not really seen anything in recent times, but I think it's something that you can create a simulation or a, um, a context in a chaos or command environment where you can test each other's, you know, decision-making um, and the re- more importantly, not so much the decision, but the reasons for making those decisions. I think that also highlights a, another great point as well about that familiarity of the processes. So the um, the idea that using these wargaming systems and technologies allows you to test commanders relying all on those staff advisors they may not ordinarily have access to and practicing those processes. Um, and I think we I think you might have touched on it earlier talking about the idea that you can create this simulated effectively, as you say, a simulated war room that you can then transplant into operational theatres for commanders. So what do you see as the future then of um, the ability to transplant this kind of technology into actual useful exercises for decision makers on operations? The Australian Defence College has, uh, as a subunit, the Australian Defence Warfare Training Centre, which has um, the, uh, which teaches the joint operations planning course and uh, any, any of the joint training courses really. And I think that in that environment, you could create a, a, a command and control system that will simulate some of the key decisions made uh, when commanders, you know, go through CONOPS briefs and actually execute missions and campaign planning and all that kind of stuff. So the key is to build um, the learning objectives first as the driver for the technological support tool rather than having the support tool and then trying to retrofit the learning objectives, that's not really going to work, I suppose, when you're building these kinds of simulations and things like that. So um, we look at technology as a key enabler rather than as the driver of, of the education in that in that context. 
So we've talked about professionalism and we've talked about the need to design learning outcomes um, so that the training is effective, but you also touched on um, the need to incorporate values as part of that professionalisation of um, military officers or, or military professionals. How does one go about deciding what values to incorporate in training for an armed force? Well, I guess the starting point for the ADF is um, really the the defence values, Um, service courage, uh, respect, integrity and excellence, and that's essentially the values we would use, right? They underlie everything and are entirely consistent with our legal um, obligations. And uh, as I think I mentioned to you before we started recording is a lot of this is incredibly practical, you know, because those values by themselves, they're words um, and ethical concepts are you know, espoused by many ethicists and very different views. But how do you actually consolidate that learning? And I would suggest that reading is great and that's a first step in understanding concepts, but then you would have to, you know, apply them. And I think that's why uh, there's a lot of potential for war games in allowing people to exercise um, probably different moral ethical decisions and seeing how it plays out, then rewinding and starting and making a different decision, seeing how that plays out and rewinding. And then you basically use the, that experience of the students um, as reflections in your lessons. Because I think the key part of using games is really creating a reflection period because the gameplay itself is not the lesson. The lesson is um, what uh, the students think about the decisions they made and the consequences and the so what from a, you know, mission or ethics or whatever the lesson plan may be. Um, and I can use a couple of games, if you like, as an example that are actually exist and address some of the issues you've actually previously raised. Um, one game I talk about a lot because it is unique is a game called This War of Mine. Um, and it is a game that looks at war not from the soldiers or combatants perspective because the only combatants well there aren't any combatants really in the in the game per se but it looks at at survivors and some of the uh, ethical decisions they have to make so it's a collaborative game i think it's um uh four four to six players um and so you your team your fellow players uh, are survivors in a war it's roughly simulates the former yugoslavian context And uh, your job is to survive. And throughout the game, um, you make decisions because you need to go out and collect food and a bunch of other things from your area to fortify your little shelter, feed people, find medicine. Um, And the only way you can do that is to go out and actually find it in the the game. Uh, And in the course of that, you'll encounter different other survivors who might want to take that from you or people who are asking you for help and you have to make a number of decisions about whether or not to help them. Um, so it's it's a narrative game as well because there's a storybook that comes with that. It's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure book, and you read certain passages depending on the decisions that you make, um, which can have significant consequences for your character. For example, um, one of the, the game parameters is um, like wounds, fatigue, and so if if you make a certain decision in a certain way, you'll take away from your like fatigue or your wounds um, and also your, I guess there's a mental resilience aspect to it um, and your character could die or 
you know, take their own life, there is actually those scenarios because they're so sad and saddened by the scenario. It's really a grim game, right? There's not one to play at game night for parties because it's really grim, but it's an interesting game because it does offer insight into how um, civilians surviving war, which is a perspective not often drawn to military people's attention, and also how they deal with some of the challenges um, in making moral decisions and the consequences of that. So, like I say, it's a rare game and I can provide some materials to you to put on your website as well because I think it's best probably seen um, visually rather than uh, than through the podcast. It's hard to explain a game from that perspective. Yeah, for sure. No, that would be great. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I think um, mm-hmm. a- another clip that um, I will describe because it, it's stuck in my head for those who've seen The Good Place, you um, you sort of used mm-hmm. the um, the the chitty in the tram having to make the ethics decision that that's you know age old which tram mm-hmm. track are you going to go down um ethics decision to actually really highlight from um from an academic perspective what is esoteric and what is just discussion what the impact of those decisions in the real world look like um and i think mm-hmm. that's a really good illustration of how the use of simulation and engaging in the consequences of actions from command decision making in armed conflict is really important to really drive home what what is at stake when making these decisions. So it's it's really nice to hear that there's a lot of work being done in incorporating those kinds of second and third order considerations um, into military training and professional military education. Yeah, and I think um, Chidi is an interesting character. He personifies the challenge, right? Chidi, um, if you're familiar with Good Place, is, um, you know, the, the moral... Um, moral ethicist and uh, he is an academic and um, his backstory is he just can't make a decision because he's got all these ethical theories in his head and he's often like, but it's, you know, it's utilitarian or it's consequentialist. I can't make this decision. Which one is it? And in that particular clip, he just couldn't make a decision on which tram track to go. So it just basically crashed into one of them. Um, And it really showed with Michael, the, the angel or, demon as you want to say it oh spoiler alerts everywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> showing um sorry spoiler alert that should be at the start of the show i'll put that in the, um, i'll put that in the show notes too <laughs> <laughs> is um michael basically says see it's not that easy to make a decision is it so um and that's essentially the the crux of of uh, ethics education and training that it's about the decision not the theory is important important grounding to understand but then it comes down to each person and their values, their character, um, and um, whether it's the values we instill through military training and education or even as they come through uh, recruit, the recruitment door, um, the values that they were taught by their family and friends, um, which is an important aspect of it as well. I would encourage people who are in educational institutions, not just not just military ones, but even in the civilian world where um, you know, the 21st century, as we now see, offers many, the world always has offered many moral and ethical conundrums. And even in COVID times, you know, the issue of, you know, we, who to give the hospital bed to when they are short, that's essentially, you know, uh, the trolley problem um, in a different context. Yeah, I'd encourage a lot of military and uh, and civilian institutions uh, in the education space to, to look at ethics and uh, morals through um, games, the use of games, and, and really get students to grapple with the issues through the practice of it um, because there are some awesome games out there. And the other plug I would put, the final plug, and it's only a $10 plug, and I'm not even getting anything out of it, 
um, is a game called Papers, Please, which is on Steam. I learned about it when I was researching my presentation to the Marine Corps. Um, and it's just a you, you play a border guard and you make decisions um, of who enters this country or not. And sometimes the people who come to you uh, are really um, wanting your help as a border guard to, you know, make it into the other side. Like, look, I need to see my dying parent or I need to see, like, my husband who I haven't seen in forever, but I don't have a permit today. And so you get the chance as a border guard to let them in or not. Uh, and the interesting part of the game is when you don't know their story, it's uh, a lot easier to treat them in a binary sense. You know, you can say yes or no pretty easy based on purely the policy application to their case. But when they tell you a story about them and you start to see them as a bit more of a person, you kind of tend to try and want to help them out a little bit more. At least I did. Um, so it's an interesting game to play from that perspective. So check it out if you're interested. It's, um, that is quite fascinating because I think um, when I first sort of heard the concept or the idea of, you know, military officers playing board games to make them better decision makers, I sort of giggled a little bit and went, well, how does, how does sitting around a board game playing Monopoly make a difference um, to their ability as military professionals to do their jobs? But when you break down, you know, the opportunity that exists with specific ethics focused games or just generally having that decision process practice it makes it makes a whole lot of sense um so i look forward to hearing what developments might come out of the adf in the next next five to ten years in relation to actually testing these commanders in in those moral ethical and legal frameworks to actually apply on operations well, thank you so much for your time today, Joe. It was fascinating talking to you and um, a lot of different perspectives on training in professional military education that I had certainly not considered before. Um, so thank you for your time. No worries. And thanks very much for having me. And uh, it's great to see uh, another podcast on um, uh, law and the future of war, and uh, particularly in an Australian perspective. So thanks very much for holding the podcast and for having me on. Thank you. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.